Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker at Goldman Sachs. So today's episode is a ton of fun because not only are we diving into an entirely new frontier technology, but also because we spend a significant amount of time talking through how you introduce an entirely new business model into a legacy industry. So that is why I'm very excited to welcome Philip Simone, the Chief Customer Officer and a co-founder at Carbon as today's podcast guest. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Carbon, Carbon is pioneering a new age of digital manufacturing by being the first to market with a breakthrough technology that makes 3D printing scalable and affordable. And in working with partners ranging from Adidas to BMW, Carbon has introduced a recurring revenue model into an otherwise CapEx-heavy industry. So it's really no surprise that the company most recently raised at a $2.4 billion valuation from investors like Madrone Capital Partners and Sequoia Capital. So in today's podcast, Philip and I discuss how Carbon is revolutionizing manufacturing across the globe. Additionally, Philip and I spend time talking through how one goes about convincing risk-averse manufacturers to sign seven-year contracts on new technologies. And lastly, Philip shares how to build a thriving customer success organization and the necessary infrastructure required to properly incentivize your sales force. So why don't we get started? Hey, Phil, how's it going? Hey, how are you? I uh, appreciate the time and it's been fun to be here. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Excited to talk about Carbon, which I think for a lot of people is a pretty nebulous company, right? It's like, what is 3D printing? So excited for you to demystify what the company does, how it works, and then what you guys are doing to change the world. So why don't we start with a little bit on your background and how you came to be part of the founding team for Carbon? Absolutely. So actually, I grew up in Chapel, North Carolina. Um, go Heels. Go Heels. <laughs> I've been a Tar Heel fan my whole life. I've been around the university my whole life. My dad has been a professor there for 27 years and uh, grew up with season tickets to UNC basketball through all the great years and some of the not so good years. <laughs> and definitely it's an awesome place to grow up and have a, a fondness for it. So I started there. I actually went to college outside of Philadelphia where a lot of my family is based. So my parents were Grew up, both of them grew up there. They were high school sweethearts. They both moved to North Carolina, but my whole family's from that area. So we're also big Eagles and Phillies and Sixers fans and uh, went to school up there. And then afterwards, after I graduated, I actually spent time at Northgate Capital, which is a large venture fund of funds started by Brent Jones and Tommy Vardell, who are probably some of the few NFL players who've been more successful outside the NFL than they were in it. And that was a great spot for me to learn really about entrepreneurship and venture investing. And after, while there, sort of realized I liked being on the field more than being on the sideline, and then went out and I started an e-commerce company, and then uh, sort of exited out of that in 2012, and was trying to figure out what to do next. And my dad had this idea for a 3D printer. He had a sort of a demo in, in a garage and went and take a look at it, and he asked me if I could sort of help him get it off the ground. And initially I said, absolutely not. Am I coming to go work for you? But uh, <laughs> sort of started looking at the market, didn't really know anything about 3D printing at the time, but fell in love, felt like there was a big opportunity. There's not many markets with a TAM as big as global manufacturing. And, you know, thought we actually had a major competitive advantage that he and a couple of the other founders figured out. And so I joined the founding team of a co-founder of the company and 
since then, we've raised over $600 million in venture funding. We've got over 400 people now here. We moved the company out from Chapel Hill to Silicon Valley in the summer of 2014, and have been here ever since. Awesome. So let's dive into what you just said around competitive advantage. Yes. So you, you don't just happen to have a 3D printer, right? You don't just happen to build one. Absolutely. So curious, what exactly was the founding rationale? What was that competitive advantage that your dad and his team had built? Yeah. So actually, one of the interesting things is if you look at 3D printing in general, every 3D print, even down to the definition, even in the claim language in the IP, every printer is a layer by layer production of a 3D object. And, you know, the concept was that if we could freeform that object, not in a layer by layer motion, but in a continuous motion, you solve a couple problems. One is speed. If you're familiar with traditional 3D printing, it's a very slow process. Single digit millimeters an hour. People have likened it to watching ice melt or paint dry and all the other <laughs> analogies. And that was a sort of a, one of the major steps. Everyone has thought for a long time about the advantage of 3D printing and the opportunity it had to break global managed supply chains and make things local for local because you get around this tooling and centralized manufacturing process. But no one's really been able to achieve it. And a lot of that had to do with speed at which prints happen. The other major problem was when you go layer by layer, particularly in plastic and polymeric parts, you actually create poor interfacial adhesion between those layers. So if you're familiar with polymers, polymers derive all their strength from chain entanglements, meaning they have memories of their prior form. And so if you take a layer of plastic and then you bond another layer of plastic above it, the bond becomes the weak point of that part in between those layers. The bulk properties become weakened because of that. Injection molding doesn't have this problem because they form the entire part at one time in a continuous motion. But 3D printers, it was a major drawback because not only was it slow, but you couldn't make a part that actually performed as well as normal polymeric parts. And so that was really the genesis was like, how do we figure out how to make that not be the case? Print things continuously, which then solves the speed problem, all as well solves the mechanical property problem of the final part. Now, you have to understand Joe's background, my dad, who's the CEO, his background is he's one of the world-class polymer scientists in the world and has been at UNC for a long time. He's one of 17 people in history to be in all three national academies. Wow. Uh, he got the National Medal of Technology from President Obama in his final year. He started eight successful startups, many of which have exited one public last year. So he's no sort of schlep in his, his own right. He's done some great stuff in his background. And the first time he looked at a 3D printer and saw this layer by layer nature, he had this sort of realization, because he was new to it as well as I was, that it looked like a bunch of mechanical engineers trying to solve a material science problem. And that was the major thing, which was, okay, let's take concepts of chemistry and figure out how we can freeform parts. And that's where this concept of actually using oxygen and light in unison came into play. So if you're familiar with UV curable systems in general, light causes them to turn from a liquid to a solid, oxygen inhibits it from happening. And if you use both of those correctly in a complicated model, you can control chemical reactions. Now, that was the major breakthrough. So we actually, in our printer, we actively generate oxygen and we're actively releasing light in a marriage, if you will, in order to control when and where chemical reactions happen, which allows us to print in a continuous motion. So that was like the major thing 
And at that point, it allowed us to print 2,500 times faster than traditional 3D wow. printers. And if you look, saw the, the talk on the stage of TED, that was really our sort of coming out moment. We'd been working on the program for two years before that. And we printed out a part that took about six and a half minutes, the length of the TED talk, that would have taken any other printer at that time five to 13 hours to do the same thing. So it was a massive, massive increase in speed. That's really wonderful. And there is quite a bit of complicated science underneath that. So I'll have to include that in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. This is unfortunately a podcast and there's no visual to it. <laughs> but one of the parallels that I love picking up there was when you gave that example of the previous model had been a bunch of mechanical engineers trying to do material science. I think oftentimes the parallel we see in Silicon Valley is a bunch of computer scientists or software engineers looking to do, let's say, healthcare or looking to do food. Yeah. And sometimes you need that industry expert really to tackle the problem in a new way. But shifting back towards competition and differentiation, right? IP is clearly a differentiating factor and will continue to be. But I'd also like to think that the business as a whole has other differentiating factors. So would love to talk about, let's say, go-to-market and the oh. business model of Carbon. You guys aren't just selling 3D printers, right? There's a whole recurring revenue model to it. Yep. So could you talk a little bit more about that go-to-market as well? You're absolutely right. Uh, we file hundreds of patents. Uh, we file patents, new ones all the time. But traditionally how we work, and anyone will tell you this, is patents are really only a single barrier. There are multiple barriers that you want to set up in order to sort of extend the moat. In many ways, we actually used our business model, as Jim Getz likes to say, used our business model as a weapon. And I think the key companies throughout history, if you look at them, are the ones that not only created differentiated technology, but also came to market with a differentiated business model. And if you use both of those in unison, you can actually have two swords in your battle instead of just one. And that's a key piece for us. And so what that was, was from day one, we never sold a printer. No one owns the printers. They subscribe to them. What that allows us to do is a couple things. One is it allows us to create a really nice business model of recurring revenue. Everything we do is recurring. So there's not a single thing that is a purchase that the customer owns. So our SaaS-like model, our, our business model is more like a SaaS company from a hardware side, except what we would call as a hybrid SaaS. So what do I mean by that is we have steady growth like SaaS companies have, and then we have these massive upticks. And the massive upticks are when production happens. So you have a person buy a machine, and then they'll use a bunch of resin, and then they'll get to a point where they find a part that they want to produce at scale, and then they'll come back and order 50 to 100 machines. And so you get these massive swings that are very uncharacteristic of SaaS, which is historically steady, methodical, reliable growth. We are in a little bit of a different place. We have the steady, reliable, methodical growth tied with these large upticks that you traditionally see out of actually out of like consumer like companies. Or even thinking about it as a SaaS business that's also selling large license deals at the yes, same time. At the same yeah. time. That's right. Except if those license deals were also recurring. recurring yes. <laughs> yeah. And that was a major piece. So what that means is that you're actually incentivizing customers to be along this journey with you. You know, I think the business model that we've sort of told them the reason why they want to do it is they always have the latest and greatest technology. They receive a software update every six weeks. Yeah. They get, anytime we release a new resin, you have access to that resin. We're making the printers faster, more accurate, all of those pieces. So the customer no longer has a depreciating asset. They have an appreciating asset. So they're willing to pay more for that. I think the other major piece of it though is because we own the printers, we can control what's actually made on them. 
So there's a couple things where that comes into effect. One is ethical reasons that carbon we are really passionate about. These machines with great resins have an opportunity to make things that you don't actually want to have in public. So what do I mean by that? Every subscription goes out that you're not allowed to actually make weapons or firearms with the printers. So we control that. And if you do, you lose the printer and you owe all the money on the subscription for that period. You're in breach of contract. But the other thing it allows us to do is actually protect promises. And for certain markets where we have unbelievable value that we've created, we create royalty-bearing agreements with them. So it allows us to actually ride in the upside of those differentiated products. And I think that's a, a unique piece, which allows us to really have a unbelievable gross margin from a production side that traditional manufacturers don't ever see. And so I would say that both of those things in unison have allowed us to do many things, not only just protect have a protection path through IP, but also a protection path through the business model as well. That's wonderful. And as you think about unbelievable value that you guys are unlocking, what are some publicly announced projects with some customers that are, let's say, your favorite or that are creating the most impact? Yeah. So actually, um, I think I have the best job on earth and my own biased, <laughs> but I get to work with all the companies that you've loved since you were a kid. Yeah. You know, the BMWs of the world, the Fords of the world, et cetera. So when I think of things, the things that we provide to them, it's really about accelerated product realization. We can help them bring products to market faster that are better. Yeah. And you don't have to wait through the traditional barriers that you have in traditional manufacturing, which is I design a part, I get a tool made. I don't see that part for three to five months. I get that part and realize, crap, I made a mistake. I yeah. need to get another tool made. And so we take these timelines and truncate them. And you look at everything that we've done you know, great products, products that I'm proud of. You look at the products like we did with Adidas and Riddell. You know, Adidas is, was the single biggest moment in the history of 3D printing. It was the first time that somebody said, it is here today to do massive scale production. Mass consumer market focus. Mass yeah. consumer market. And, you know, we started there because if you can make a consumer shoe cost effectively, you can do pretty much anything. Yeah. And also uh, one that looks good one as, that looks a, good as an owner of that shoe. <laughs> I would like to hope at least that that shoe looks Absolutely. good. But one of the cool things about that program that you only know if you're from the inside is from the first conversation that I had with Adidas to when they launched a product was 12 months in one day. There was a six month negotiation in that period. Really, we only did six months of product development. That's usually what, like a two, three year process, right? Two to three year process. And so that is unbelievable. And, you know, when you look at from their perspective, why it's important for them is when they release a shoe, their quarters aren't determined by how many shoes they sell. It's how many shoes they don't throw away. I release a product. If it doesn't sell, I'm stuck. All that tooling that I made for every size and half size goes in the garbage can. Yeah. And then if I make a product and it sells out, then I'm also stuck because I have a really tough time making more and ramping that supply chain up to increase. With 3D, they can release a product, 5,000 pair. If they sell out, they make 100,000 more. If they don't, they move on to the next design. No sunk cost. And so I think that's like a major, major thing, major change for them from their business model side. It allows them to test things a lot faster, bring things to market a lot faster, and also take bigger risk that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. And so that's what I'm happy with. And I think we've done some great stuff on the model side. Riddell is also sort of a, a little bit of a similar story. First conversation to products on field, we had a player on every team for the second half of last year in four months. 
their product cycles are even longer than it is. So traditionally, they release a new helmet about every four to five years. That was breakthrough for them. The public launch happened four months after that, so eight months total. And we're able to provide a protection level that no one else in the world can do. So not only is it uh, the helmets custom made, each player gets their head scanned, but the pads that we make are determined based upon millions and millions of data points on the type of impacts that that player receives and able to provide something that in some ways helps do our part to address a lot of the issues that those sports are seeing. And it's not just football. I mean, we're starting to see this and bringing products to market across all other team sports, baseball, hockey, lacrosse, equestrian, bicycling, motocross, everything. And so it's a deep well for us and you're gonna see a lot of excitement in that space going forward. That's awesome. And then as I think about your role, which is chief customer officer, whenever I hear that term, I generally think of customer success. Yeah. And I think whether that's, you know, increasing net revenue retention or what have you, one of the things that I think a lot of our founders get a little stumbled on is sometimes they'll find a Ford or an Adidas, a really big marquee logo, and they'll sell into them and they'll sell this vision. But it's one thing to sell the product and sign the contract and it's another thing to implement it successfully, right? So I would imagine there had to have been a case or two where the initial vision as to why Carbon was implemented as a partner at one of your key partners didn't work out, right? So could you talk through maybe any lessons learned or tips in terms of number one, accelerating the implementation, right? Because these are big companies. And then number two, maybe helping a customer pivot really quickly where the first design doesn't work out, but let's get you ramped up on that second one. Yeah, that's actually a great question. So when we look at sort of where we have been unsuccessful Historically, I actually look back to the earlier customers. I think back then you, you have a vision for what it's going to be, and then you realize all the barriers that are in place. I think, you know, in many ways, their first set of customers, we had the right idea, it was the wrong time. And it doesn't mean that they're not customers today, but it means that they put on a, a much slower trajectory than some of the customers we're doing now. So if you actually look at our cohort analysis that we have that we monitor by half, it's night and day difference. The slopes to increasing to utilization is much faster because you know what you're doing. You understand now what things work and what things don't work. And when you're category creating, in many ways, actually, there's no way around it. If you're creating a market that did not exist, and I would argue is what we do, because we really don't compete against other 3D printing companies. We're competing against traditional manufacturing. I've never have somebody, you know, challenge my quote with another 3D printer. It's challenging my quote with the traditional means. But when you look at that, I actually think that, you know, you start to realize you go through these doors and then you realize there's a door on the other side. And the key is not to be daunted by it. You know, Joe always talks about this and it's a mantra here that the obstacle is the way. In many ways, I actually look at these things as although they were hard and they were a pain in the ass at the time, it creates more barriers. I talk to people today that say they want to start a 3D printing startup and I'm just like, good luck. You know, it's not in a way of just, you know, trying to be biased or, or uplifting. It's a really, really tough space. It's not like software. We have resin supply chain, hardware supply chain, you know, these things that not other, many other companies have to deal with that we have and any given one of them can kill you. So it's one of those things you've got to be good at everything in order to be, do it well. And what I look at is, you know, we had a lot of customers that, got to a part that they liked. And then they were like, great, I need to make 20,000 of them. And then you look around and you realize, oh my gosh, there's no ecosystem to fill it. Yeah. You know, there's no supply chain. So what you ended up starting to do is we actually, from day one, we started with a machine, realized that speed wasn't the only thing. So we got through that door. 
Then we realized, okay, if you have speed and you don't have good materials, you're just a faster prototyping machine. That doesn't buy you anything. So we had a major innovation on the materials front, which allowed us to get properties that you couldn't get historically out of 3D printers. And that was through our dual cure systems. And that allows us to get thermoplastic properties out of a UV cure oil system, which was the first time that ever been done. So got through that wall. And then you get to the other side and it's like, great, I wanna design you know, these parts that I can't make and limp CAD is limiting. So you look at that Riddell helmet, there's 140,000 struts on average in those helmets. Every single strut, if you were designing it by hand, it would take you a year as an engineer to do that. So we had to come up with the design tools using FEA to help people do that instantly because there was no way they were gonna be able to fully take advantage of the process. So then we started making design tools and providing that to our customer base. You then get that point, you're like, great, I have this part. I wanna make 200,000 of them. And you start looking around and you're like, bulk resin handling's not there. The supply chain for that. There's no CMs with hundreds of these machines yet. So we have to build that up. There's no MES system that can handle N of one for 300,000 unique parts. So we end up having to develop our own MES systems. You start to get to this place where you're building out these things. Manufacturing is really hard. It just is. And, but the problem is as a startup, you get to a point and you look around and you're like, hey, Autodesk, Dassault, can you help us make these design tools? They're not gonna help you within the next three to five years. Where's the market? Yeah. So you end up having to do it on your own. You then get to the point of, uh, you know, the MES system, you go to Oracle and SAP, hey, can you help me, you know, create this end of one or they're not gonna move fast. So we got to these barriers, but you know, what the funny thing is, I would say that there's no better way to be creative when you face death. <laughs> so you have to find a solution for it. And I think it's a mentality that we've sort of had is we're not going to let a third party prevent us from seeing our dream, which is to change global manufacturing. And that was a sort of a major decision we made early on and now carries out throughout the organization. You know, I sort of liken it to grit. I mean, it's something you can't really teach but there's a lot of people who would see that and be like daunted by it and say, I'm going to rely on a third party to do it. And I'm not saying the third parties couldn't do it, but it would have taken three to five years to get anything. And we don't have three to five years. You know, as soon as you raise money, you're on the clock. And so you've got to be able to come up with a solution faster. And I think that's one of the major sort of nuances of this business and something that I'm proud of and has made us successful. Has it been hard? Absolutely. But it's definitely been a major area of our success. That's wonderful. And I think when a lot of founders we've interviewed talk about keys to success, they always talk about this broader theme of removing friction for the customer. But what I love about the category creation story is the resilience required to not only remove friction for your customer, but literally for yourself. Yeah. And that's really exciting. So props to you all. And I'm sure there's still a ton left to do there. Always. But there's a lifetime of work here. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think that's a, the exciting thing and also the daunting thing at the same yes, time. But yes. you have to enjoy that kind of thing. Yeah. But nothing worth celebrating is ever easy. So yeah, that's correct. Want to do a little bit of philosophizing. You had mentioned before about how with your partners, you have a couple of safeguards in place, right? Because there's so much hysteria on 3D printing with, let's say, guns. Yeah. And I, I would imagine the end goal vision at some point after you've revolutionized the manufacturing supply chain is there might be a 3D printer in some capacity in every home. Um, so in philosophizing, what are the ways that we as a society, whether those be regulators, the companies themselves, how can we create a safe environment with 3D printers? I think that's a great point. I think the challenge is always going to be just like 2D printing. 
you can print whatever photo or whatever document you want on a 2D printer. Yeah. It's one of the challenges with 3D printing. Controlling those things is really, really hard. And in fact, actually, if a customer wanted to print something bad, they could do it. Now, we have the contractual ability to remove the machine when they do, but it's sort of a little bit after the fact, right? Because they're super protective about the types of things that they're making, rightfully so, because there's oftentimes new products that haven't even been released yet. So, you know, I'm sort of under the belief that, you know, good people will always do good things and bad people will always do bad things. And so when you sort of get to that philosophical level, we do our part to try and make it hard, as difficult as possible for bad people to do bad things, but not saying it's impossible. So I think at the end of the day, you're sort of in many ways banking on on the ethics of society and the types of people you surround yourself with. I've rejected a lot of people from buying machines. And that's a good spot to be. Not many startups have the ability to do that. But I actually think everybody should think hard about who their customers are and what their intended use of their products are. Especially right now. This is coming up more and more often recently. And I think we've done a good job of that at Carbon. I think the things that we are doing are, are in the customer base that we're doing is really about making people's lives better. And I don't think many people do that. And that's a shame. So from our side, you have control over who ha gets access to your equipment and to your product. And people should think long and hard about how and who gets access to those things. Got it. That's a good perspective. And I appreciate you sharing that. So diving back into the business model here. So you're running an innovative business in many different fashions, but at the end of the day, it's somewhat recurring. So curious, what are the key KPIs or metrics that you track to gauge the health of the business? Huh, it's a great question. It's not just one. So Alan Mulally's on our board and Alan's mantra is the data will set you free. And so collect everything. Now, often people, and what I always say is, just because you collect everything doesn't mean everything's relevant. But you sort of have to collect everything to determine what's relevant or not. And so we are a data-centric company. Each one of those printers spits out a million data points a day. So we know when things are not working. We know when the machine is having issues before you do from a predictive customer support perspective. That's wonderful. We know how much you're printing, what resins you're using, and total hours a week that printer's operating. And so when I look at things, there's a couple of things that I take a look at. Obviously, I look at weekly active users. So how much of our install base is actually printing on a weekly basis? Because one of the big issues with additive and 3D printing in general is many places you will walk into, those machines will not be operating. And the reason for that is because a lot of people don't know what to use it for. They don't know what parts that are make sense. They don't know why. If you're printing a part that can be injection molded, just injection molded. Injection molding is pretty freaking good, unless you've got volume restraints. And so what we really look at and what my team does, and I've got all of this data, I can look at any customer right now on my phone and tell you how much they're printing, what operators are operating the machine, all of that stuff. And really what it's about is making sure that they're getting value out of it. And so our utilization across our install base is north of 90% across all of our printers. I guarantee you there is not another 3D printing company out there that has close to that. And the reason for that is because when we first sell a printer, that is really just the start of the battle. We really wrap our arms around them to make sure they are successful. So my post-sales team is as big as my pre-sales team. In fact, it's actually bigger. And the, the concept behind that was we would much rather have 10 customers with 10 machines each than 100 with one. 
And what does that mean? You have to help them find the parts that make sense. You have to do lunch and learns for their engineering teams. You know, we think education is really that long pole. At some point in the category creation phase, they're going to look at a 3D printer like they do the injection molding machine, like they do the stamping machine, like they do a CNC machine. Right now, that is not the case. 3D printing is not even considered a manufacturing tool. We're trying to change that. And so what you have to do is you have to really focus on education. So I look at, from a printer, the time the printer installs, to how long it takes them to get up to you know, 30, 40 hours a week, which is roughly a single shift fully utilized, and then how quickly it takes them to buy the next one, subscribe to the next one. Every quarter, we average between 30 to 40% of our bookings are repeat purchases. So that is something that we pride ourselves in and something that we drive on, and that's based upon those printing metrics. It's also based on customer success and customer, the reliability of the machine. If the machine breaks down weekly, they're not gonna come back. So we tie ourselves to that, making sure that customer's gonna be successful. So I look at those things. One on the corporate level, you know, so that's sort of a customer success side. On a corporate level, we have sort of what I would say three main avenues for revenue. One is the subscription, which is tied to the uh, essentially guaranteed, right? The printers go out on three, five, seven year deals. As you add more, the price comes down. As you extend longer, the price goes down, so on. So there's a matrix there. Resin revenue is another one. That's not contractually guaranteed. That's based on utilization. So the customer buys it as needed. But we do monitor and, you know, the utilization and the purchasing of the resin because if they're purchasing more resin, then obviously they're finding some success. And so that's one of the key metrics as well. And then the other one is the royalties that we're getting on some of those products that are unique to us. So we monitor all of those. We sort of have unique metrics that we track that not many people do that are unique to us. So we call it ACV plus or ARR plus, which is annual contract value of the subscription plus the estimated resin that we expect from that machine on a yearly rate. And that's based upon the industry and how new they are with the process. So we sort of have a, a pretty good matrix that helps us figure those things out. And that's something that we look at from a growth side. But from customer success, it's really about utilization of the printer. And you know, I think it's interesting to see how quickly they stop asking for help because you sort of track you know, the amount of tickets that we receive for into our service org. And as they start to decline and printing increases, it means they've sort of figured it out and got it. And when you have utilization, everything else like revenue just happens as an indirect. If the printer's being used, the revenue will follow. That's wonderful. I want to ask one quick question then about the business before we shift to the last part of the podcast. You mentioned three, five, seven-year deals. So I don't want the audience to take that lightly because to have an entirely new market, a new product, and convince a large enterprise to do more than a one-year deal is really special. So this is something I think a lot of enterprise founders struggle with is how do you not only negotiate more than a month-long deal, but a one-year deal or a three-year deal. Could you share any sort of lessons learned or tips for the audience? I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> so I first proposed three, We actually for all initial... Up until last year, we only had three years as an option. But let me tell you back to how that started. So back before we started coming to market, we knew we wanted to do a subscription. We knew that it was definitely the way to go. And I sort of proposed that we start with three years. Jim Getz and the board thought I was insane. They were like, there is no way you're going to get anyone to do three years. That would have been my response as well, just to be clear. <laughs> just like, you know, don't hinder yourself. Don't handicap yourself. Do one year, get it in there, get them to love it, all of those things. 
The tricky piece is people don't realize this, but manufacturing equipment, they're used to having it in their shop for five plus years. Uh, yeah. Easy. But the other thing I also know is because it's a new product and a new category, it might take six to 12 months for you to find something useful for it. I mean, we didn't know what we were going to do with it to start, but I didn't want that to be a deterrent. Like to say they get it in 12 months, yep, didn't find anything, get it out the door. So we made it bit early and I convinced them. And I remember coming back to it, they were like saying that there is no way that you're going to get it, but we will let you try for the first couple of quarters. And the funny thing is, as soon as we get the first couple, then it becomes from a negotiation side, it becomes a lot easier. You're like, you've got the blue chip customers. You got Ford, you got Google, you got BMW, you got some of these other folks. And I have a small company say, hey, you know, I want your printer, but I'm not doing three, I'm gonna do one. I was like, Ford and BMW did it. So, you know, they're your competitors, why wouldn't you do it? And so that's where it started. Now, it's not even questioned. People just understand that to come to carbon, it's going to be a three-year commitment. And in fact, if I want a discount, I have to go five or seven years in commitment. And that's something recently. So right now, our average contract length, leaving this quarter, was four years per contract. Wow. So that was a breakthrough. From a Wall Street perspective, I think, well, actually, from a venture, we definitely stunted our growth, for sure, in the early years, without a doubt. But I would argue, I'm glad we did it, because the product was not ready yet, to be frank. It was, we didn't know what it was going to be good at. We didn't know, you know, where it was going to find success, all of those things. So in many ways, I think we were lucky because if we would have sold a hundred of them right off the bat, I think we would have gotten cooked. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Because of just the, how the product was reacting. So we started with three and, you know, a lot of sort of got success and got to the point where we were comfortable selling, you know, hundreds of these. And then instead of going the opposite way or instead of going towards one, we decided to go, let's see if we can get longer. Introduced a five and seven year contract. Now it makes up 50% of our purchases. And so I can snap a chalk line today and have guaranteed revenue for at least four years. That's fantastic. Which not many people can say. And from a valuation perspective is huge and a great story for the street. So I would say, depends on your market, but if you feel like you can do it, try it. You know, one quarter, two quarters is not gonna kill you. But if you decide to do it, you have to stick to it. You can't give the other people an option. And I've seen a lot of people try our subscription model. So just words of advice to teams. There's a lot of people out there that will say, well, you can get right off the bat and jump if you just do the normal CapEx positioning. And we could have. I think we could have, our revenue would have been 4X what it was earlier. But now it's paying dividends. Because every time you have a quarter, a great quarter, you're expected to do even better the next one. What's great about the SaaS model is everything we add is just adding on top. And because of our great service, great support, great post-sale support, we have very little churn, pretty much actually nothing. So I can count the number of customers who've lost on my left hand and give you reasons exactly for why. And I think that's sort of a unique space to be in, but I tell folks, stick to your gut. And if you do it, you have to jump fully in. There's no wiggling because as soon as you show a little bit, crack the door a little bit, everyone barges through. And I've got a lot of companies that have started out in the, the space, and I won't say who they are, who wanted to try and do the subscription like we did, but also asked the CapEx position, 90% of their sales are CapEx. And once you incentivize your sales team that way, why wouldn't they sell the large deal up front? <laughs> They're going to sell the easiest thing. Exactly. So then last question here, Phil, around the title of the podcast, which is pattern recognition. What are some consistent patterns you see across, I guess you would call it a successful manufacturing tech business? 
I think the ones that I've seen that have done well from a pattern recognition perspective is great engineering team, always. You know, us business people, we're a dime a dozen. So, you know, I think people could do what I do. And I trust me, I don't take that for granted. So making sure that they've got quality engineering teams is, is key with people that have seen it before. I also think, you know, and this is fundamental to us, diversity of ideas, people, you know, everything. You, you sort of hit on a couple of things earlier and I almost made a comment then, but, you know, different backgrounds solve problems differently. And it's not just about race, but it's also about socioeconomic background. Somebody with money solves a problem differently than somebody without money. Not saying either are right, but having both on the table are the only way to come up with the best solution. So getting as many ideas around the, uh, as possible is key. And we've done that a great job of that here. And something that we pride ourselves into, in is the diversity of our workforce. And Joe is a big proponent of it and has been before it was even cool, even back in his days and as professors when it came to his students. I think the other major thing that I'd look for is their ability to understand and collect data is definitely key. But I think the other thing that I look for, and it's not necessarily you could put a number on, but it's the grit of the culture at the top. And that's not something that's necessarily quantitative, but more of a trait. I would much rather have somebody that's moving quickly, makes mistakes, learns, moves on, than not trying to take a shot at all. And I think that's something that we look for here all the time. I don't need the smartest people from the best universities. I need the somebody who's going to run through a wall and not take no for an answer. And it's a, sort of a little bit of a different thing, but you know, I think it's something that's sort of treated us well here. I'm okay with mistakes. Mistakes are fine. As long as you learn from them, you move on. And as long as you continue to move quickly. That's great. Well, Phil, that is all of our time today. I appreciate you joining the podcast. Once again, a big thank you to Phil for joining us today. If you are at all a sneakerhead, I highly recommend you check out the Adidas 40 shoes, which were printed alongside a partnership with Carbon. Now, in the meantime, I have tweeted out our upcoming guest list on Twitter, which includes Reshma Saujani, founder at Girls Who Code, as well as Jason Robbins, founder at DraftKings. So I'd absolutely love if you could send in your questions and I will look forward to giving you a shout out during those interviews. You can tweet at me at John Heasy. That's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.